Welcome again to uh, Church of the Good Shepherd. I'm so glad you're here for our service, uh, our afternoon service here at 4 p.m. I'm going to continue in our series from the Ten Commandments. In particular, uh, we are looking at the eighth word, you shall not steal. And I don't know if you've been here the last couple of weeks, especially last week where we talked about you shall not commit adultery. Uh, we are moving on to less controversial ground in many ways. And in some ways, you know, when we talk about stealing, it's a far more obvious sin. And many of us, I think, would uh, understand it on many levels. So stealing is something we know we ought not to do. And uh, we can think of many ways in which it's manifest in our society. For example, you know, a burglar will come into a home and steal what is in a home. And um, some of you may have been... Uh, victims of that, or you can think of a bank robber. You remember a few years ago how a guy walked into the Standard Chartered at Holland Village, put a note, you know, I have a gun in my bag, you know, give me all the money that you have in your till, and he escaped. His, this is him in a CCTV <laughs> picture, David uh, James Roach, who's now being extradited from the UK, and pretty soon I think we'll be back in Singapore and we'll read all about the incident and the exploits. But in our current climate, you know, with COVID-19 sweeping not just Singapore, but around the world, we've had lots of stories. This is one in Singapore where a man was arrested of cheating, right? Where he claimed he could sell him 500 boxes of uh, masks and took a $175,000 deposit and then produced no masks. And um, I've, I've been reading not just here in Singapore, but, you know, in the UK as well and all around the world, uh, people are profiteering or even outright cheating, you know, scamming people. And so when we talk about you shall not steal, I think almost all of us here, Christian or non-Christian, we know this is something you should not do because society tells us it's wrong. It's a crime. And, you know, after last week, many of you may be saying, this doesn't apply to me can go to sleep now with, uh, you know, a clear conscience. I want to say to you, not so fast. (laughs) All right, we're going to look at it in a moment. But before we do that, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer to prepare our hearts for what the Lord would say to us and how He would speak to us. Father, as we come to this series, Perfect and that You continue to speak to us from Your Word, to encourage, to challenge, Lord, to put a finger on the areas in our life that have yet to be yielded to you. And I pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, that your words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, as we know, are part of God's law. And I've talked about this uh, over the past few weeks, and in case you hadn't been hearing or you've forgotten, you know, I've talked about how the law functions in a way like the hammer of God. That's what Martin Luther said. It, uh, you know, smashes our uh, false sense of um, righteousness, our false self-righteousness, our false self-justification, and... um, um, takes away any illusions we may have that we are basically good people. In fact, the Word of God talks about uh, it this way. It's not my word. 
in Jeremiah's uh, prophecy, he says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And so the law of God can come like a hammer to smash those of us who have hard hearts and to break up the hardness of our hearts so that the Lord may do a deep work in us. But let's look at this uh, uh, word, you shall not steal, and understand that, you know, as you look at Scripture's witness, there's quite a broad definition of what it means to steal. That it goes beyond just the act of taking someone else's property. That there are many things which fall under that category, as, a, as it were. But as I look at this passage and as I study the Word of God, you know, there is an unmistakable connection between people and their property. Like it or not, you know, there is a, a sense in which what we own um, creates some level of emotional attachment. I mean, have you ever tried to declutter? You know, I know I've done this unsuccessfully many times in my lifetime. You know you don't really need it, you haven't used it for many years, but you think to yourself, at least I think to myself, I'm sure I'll find a use for it, better not throw it away. And, you know, it's actually a worthless piece of junk. And there's no reason you keep it, it takes up space, it clutters the house. I know my wife tells me this all the time and I'm terrible at it. So she waits until I'm away and then she'll clear for me. <laughs> you know, it's missing. I don't miss it because I haven't actually used it for years. But nonetheless, there is a sense in that what we are includes what we have. Now, I'm not saying we ought to, you know, measure our self-worth by our net worth. Yet there is an, a measure in which there is a truth in which what we are includes what we have. For example, can you uh, not agree with me, don't you agree with me that ultimately where you live sort of defines who you are, right? The kind of home you live in, people will look at you and, you know, they come to some kind of conclusion of the kind of person you are. And likewise, you know, whether you drive or don't drive, and what kind of car you drive, oftentimes gives people or, you know, we, even for ourselves, we have a sort of self-perception. But I think the place in which we see this connection most clearly is if you have become a victim of theft. You know, in my lifetime, my car has been broken into three times. And every time it's happened, there's a deep sense of personal violation. First time was when I was doing my undergraduate studies in the US. And I remember I parked it in the university parking lot and, you know, didn't go out for uh, uh, many days. But when I finally went back to my car, I found that the, you know, it wasn't smashed, but the car door was open and I remember locking it and then I found my car stereo missing. Wasn't a very expensive stereo, you know, didn't really amount to much in a sense. But still, there was this deep sense of violation. Second time it happened was uh, when we were in Canada. And actually, as I think about it, largely my fault. I forgot to lock the car. Came back, the GPS was missing, my sunglasses were missing, several odds and ends in the uh, uh, car were missing, and I was very upset about it. Made police report, everything else. Then police asked me, did you lock your car? I say, I think I didn't. <laughs> you know, I said, well, then he gave me a lecture <laughs> about, you know, being more wise about things like that. But the last time was a few months back, I was in JB. And I came back and, you know, eh, 
why is there stuff all over my seats? Then I went inside, I realized someone had opened and, and jammed open the door lock and gotten in, stole, um, again, sunglasses. I don't know why they like, they took um, some CDs. I don't know why they want CDs. <laughs> you know, took uh, even cases, uh, um, phone case, I had spare phone case inside the car and was gone. And they stole my dash cam. And I was trying to figure out why does he want my dash cam. And I think because he realized his photo was in there. You know, because in parking mode, it often keeps recording. But nonetheless, each time, what was missing didn't amount to very much money. Yet, I felt a deep sense of violation to my personal being, to my personal space. It left me sick to my stomach, having been a victim of theft. And I think you begin to see it too when you look at uh, Scripture and Scripture's witness. For example, do you know that as... Uh, the, the, the law was given in Exodus chapter 20. But you read a little bit further on, what happens is Moses begins to elaborate on the laws. God begins to teach the people, you know, how you act out these laws, how, what, what it actually means. And for instance, when you get to Exodus chapter 21 verse 16, this is the first place in which uh, the law, you shall not steal, is talked about. And it says this, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. That, you know, uh, stealing can go so far as kidnapping. And that's a form of stealing. And obviously, that's a very extreme form. But later on, in Exodus 22, verses 7 and 8, it says, If a man gives his neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping, and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if he is caught, must pay back double, right? So it's, the idea is that you return what you stole and then now you need to suffer what you had caused the other person to suffer. But you know, it's someone else who was uh, keeping your goods for you. Well, the law goes on to say, but if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges to determine whether he has laid his hands on the other man's property. <laughs> In other words, you know, uh, uh, you will... There is a sense in which you need to protect your neighbor's property. But then it goes even further than that. Because later on in Exodus 23, it says this, If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him, your enemy, okay? Because if you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. And this is really where... Jesus later on elaborates, he says, you know, don't just love your friends and your neighbors, love your enemies as well. And loving your enemies means also, you know, take care of their possessions. It includes their possessions. So, we see that the property is, uh, in a sense, inextricably linked to how you treat and love other people. And, and certainly we know, as we come to this passage, we'll see as it ends up, uh, the passage that was read in Leviticus uh, 19, we see that, you know, this law to not steal from others includes not exploiting others for your own benefit. Because in verse 9, it goes on of uh, Leviticus 19, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. In other words, don't take everything you can take for yourself. Leave some of it 
But even after you've harvested, don't collect up everything you've harvested. Leave some of the gleanings. Leave some of what you have harvested. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God, and you shall not steal. And you see here that, you know, there is a sense in which our responsibility to make sure that justice is served, that those who are downtrodden and downcast and who are poor and disadvantaged are not taken advantage of, that if we have the means and we can help those who are in need, if we close our hearts up to them, we have actually stolen. We have failed to provide for those who have need. It goes on later on in verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbour or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, don't withhold what is due. A worker is worthy of his or her hire. Make sure you are a good paymaster. And then in verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And so it's very clear that there is a link between this command, you shall not steal, and how we treat those who are less fortunate, especially those of us who have it in our power to do something about it, to find a way to make sure their needs are met. And I think it's no accident, you know, we, we read on the book, in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church and there was revival that took place, right? You read about, I've often puzzled about this, you know, why is it they sold what they had and they gave so that no one in the church had any need? It's because, you know, that transformation of heart and life and amendment of life caused them to conform to this law. You shall not steal goes beyond just not taking other people's needs, but not hoarding it to yourself either. That you make sure that, you know, your access feeds and helps those who are in need so that everyone is provided for. And so you can see from Scripture there is this important connection. And I would suggest to you, stealing ultimately is a symptom of a problem that goes much, much deeper. So what is this problem? I think we know, as I've already told you, the first five commandments conform to the, 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 the first table of the law, conform to the great commandment, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And the second table is like unto it, is, is what Jesus taught. The second is like unto it, and it's this second table that we, from uh, uh, um, the sixth commandment onwards, deals with this. And here we see in this passage in Leviticus also, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That ultimately we are called to love others. And in keeping these laws, it's not enough, I think it was Hock Chan who pointed out to us, it's not enough just to refrain from doing something, that there is a positive aspect to the law as well. That, you know, we don't just refrain from doing evil, we need to come in the opposite spirit and do good. Work against that spirit which causes us to want to steal. 
if we really think about it, at the end of the day, this is why uh, Martin Luther pointed out that if you break any of the laws, you ultimately break the first law. And the first law is that I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That at the end of it, you know, the problem we have is a problem of idolatry. Whenever we break any of God's laws, it's because we don't recognize God as God. And we don't uh, um, uh, see Him as God. And in a sense, you know, our possessions end up possessing us. We end up uh, having mammon as our God, where the substance becomes more important to us uh, than the people um, that are around us. It's like, um, I can't even remember who is it that says this, you know, that we should use money and love people. But so often in the world, and even in the church to some extent, we need to be careful, we end up using people and loving money. And that's not what God intended. That's not uh, what He calls us to. So what is the remedy? How do we overturn this idolatry that's in all our hearts if we are honest about it? You know, I would suggest to you when you withhold your money and you don't give, there's a sense in which yourself is wrapped up in that. We see this in Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. You remember the story, of course, how when uh, he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what do the commandments say? And he recited the law. And he said, you know, I've kept all these commandments since I was young, but Jesus pointed out to him, one thing you lack. Sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And the passage tells us he went away sad, sorrowful, because his self was wrapped up. He could not give of himself, ultimately, that there was that idolatry. But also, I think we see this uh, understanding and um, the, the parable of the talents gives us a clue as to how we can overcome these things. Because the parable of the talents, at the end of the day, the message that that parable tells us is that everything we have is a gift from God. Right? It talks about this uh, uh, rich landowner who gives to his servants one five, one two, and one a single talent. It's interesting to me, I've been uh, uh, studying this parable for a lot, and uh, apparently in the English language, the word talent comes from this parable. Because actually talent in the Greek, in the way it's used in the passage, is a, is a measurement of money. It's, it's how much, uh, uh, it's a... It's a um, qualification for money, but now it's come to be understood as a measurement for gift. You know, the, the abilities, the gifts that we have, you're, you're so talented, we would say. It's actually derived from this uh, very uh, parable. And, and the understanding is, is if we see everything as a gift, then our attitude towards what we have is changed. See, the problem is for so many of us, myself included at times, I think of what I have as something I've earned or something I deserve or am entitled to, entitled to, as opposed to it having been given to me to be a steward over, to be a manager of. And I think, you know, the key for us to overcoming this uh, spirit of avarice, this spirit of greed, this spirit of um, um, 
allowing mammon to dominate our lives, the clue is actually to learn to give and to give generously. And I get this from the book of Malachi, where the prophet Malachi was speaking to the people of Israel and because they had wandered away from God, he had warned them they needed to return. Let me, let's look at this passage in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 10. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. And so the judgment was being made. You have not kept the law that I have given you. The commandments that have been given right from Exodus 20 all throughout the, you know, the history of the people of God in the Old Testament, you see that time and time again, they fail to keep the law. And this is what God says to them, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And we understand this, that we need to return. How should we return, you ask? But you ask, how are we to return? And listen to this, this is really interesting. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. How are we to return? God says, don't withhold your tithe and your offering. There is this sense in which what Jesus said is very true. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why does Malachi say, why does the word of God through Malachi say that withholding your tithe is robbing God? Well, if we understand that everything we have comes from God, Right, we say that in offering things. All that we have comes from you, and of your own do we give you. That's the understanding. Then, the understanding is that everything we own, we are just stewards of. We have been given a responsibility to oversee and manage. And yes, you know, part of it is taking care of ourselves. You know, using it for our own enjoyment and pleasure. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But when we withhold our tithe, there is a sense in which there is this mentality that ultimately this is my uh, money to do what I want with. You know, in uh, older situations in Singapore also, because you know, we sort of have derived our law from common law, there is something called a quit rent. Have you ever heard of quit rent? Quit rent is basically sometimes you are given a lease of a land. And oftentimes, it's given to you to take care of that land. But instead of asking for you to you know, pay a, a rental a, a sum, you, there is a token sum they ask you to pay, a dollar, two dollars, or something very small. The understanding of that small amount is to say and acknowledge that I do not own this land. This land still belongs to the landowner, right? But it is put under my charge and under my care, and I pay a quit rent. And in a sense, if you stop and you think about it, a tithe means 10%. It is a small sum that we give back to God to acknowledge that everything I have comes from you. 
And I'm acknowledging that you are the one who owns it all. Which is why, you know, when we withhold our tithe, ultimately, we are saying, no, this is mine to do as and how I wish to uh, deal with it. I remember, you know, uh, as, as I started out in ministry, I started out under the uh, ministry of my father. He was my vicar. He was also my boss. He's my father. It's like he's like triple, uh, triple authority over me. <laughs> But one of the things I learned from him in ministry is that, you know, very often you can tell the spiritual health of the con- uh, uh, congregation by the health of their giving. And his policy was always that you don't have to, you know, preach about giving. You don't have to hammer people about giving. You teach it, which is what I'm doing now. But you realize this is not a topic I talk about uh, extensively. And, you know, to be fair, I would say, you know, you as a church, Church of the Good Shepherd, you've been very, very generous. And, uh, you know, by God's grace, for example, we're coming very close to our goal of, of, of uh, raising everything we need. And so I'm not saying this because you, you, <laughs> you have been withholding your tithe, although maybe some of you have been redirecting it somewhat. But that's another thing altogether. But he was saying this that what you need to do is to, you need to work with the congregation on their spiritual health. Because when a congregation, when a people are spiritually healthy, they automatically understand this principle that everything we have comes from God. And when we give, we're just giving a portion of it back to Him and acknowledging His ownership of everything. That the giving oftentimes reflects very clearly the health, not only of the congregation, but also of the individual. And in that way, I think that's why uh, Malachi told the people of God, don't withhold your tithes and your offerings. If you are serious about returning to God, if you are serious about getting your uh, life right, start there. That's the place you need to start because like it or not, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as you give to the things of God, your heart belongs then to the Lord. At the end of the day, there is this unmistakable connection between the two. I don't know how you feel about something like this, and certainly as we've been going through the words, as I prepare, I know I I find myself oftentimes saying, oh dear, oh dear, I've fallen short. Oh no, you know, I'm not met the mark. And I realize there are so many things in my life that still need to be lined up with uh, how God would have us live life. But there is good news. Right? The Bible tells us that there was one who was rich, who chose to become poor for our sakes. There was one who, you know, for him, equality with God was not something to be grasped or in some uh, translations, to be exploited. Or I like the New King James, it says this in Philippians 2, that Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But instead, He emptied Himself, took on the form of a servant, and was obedient, obedient even unto death on a cross. And you see, folks, you know, the reality is that all of us have struggled to keep these ten words. 
And I think I told you right from the beginning of this series that these words were addressed to uh, um, the Son of God. Israel as his son, in a sense, but Israel obviously failed to keep it. Then God had to send a second Israel, that is Jesus Christ. That he came to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law so that we might be beneficiaries of that righteousness. He went to the cross and he emptied himself and paid our debt, which we could not pay, so that our debts, in that sense, are cancelled. I want to leave you uh, with a thought because, see, on the one hand, the law is important and comes as a hammer, like I said, to, you know, hammer us, especially those of us who have, you know, these uh, delusions of our self-righteousness that, you know, I'm okay, I'm not that bad a person. It's to point us, uh, point us to the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I'm also very much aware that at times, if all you hear is the law and you don't hear the gospel, you may go away feeling depressed or downtrodden and, and feel like, oh, woe is me, what is uh, the solution for me? Which is why we also need to hear the gospel. And there's a book which I uh, read years ago, but recently as I was preparing, came across it and re was reminded of it. And it's entitled The Hammer of God by Bo Geertz, who is a, a Swedish Lutheran bishop. And he wrote this book, especially the first half, as uh, in the form of a novel, basically to teach the proper distinction of the law and the gospel. And in particular, you know, he's following the story of a young pastor, Sabonius, who is, you know, learning what it means to be a parish priest. And he's going around and doing, you know, the cure of souls, taking care of people, his pastoral care. He comes across an old man who's really on his last legs. And, you know, is, is probably not got many more uh, uh, days left in his life. But this man is inconsolable. Despite the fact that he has been a Christian for 30 years of his life and has been faithful in, in, in his Christian life, he's inconsolable because he believes he's beyond salvation. And he is in a, a state of, you know, utter despair. And uh, this young pastor is at his wit's end. He doesn't know what to do about this. And, you know, suddenly an old friend of uh, the, this old man, the old man's name is Johannes, a very old friend of his, Katrina, comes to visit. And let me read uh, from the story uh, of this encounter where Katrina comes in. Because, you know, Katrina really brings the gospel to Johannes. And I think it's a word that is helpful for all of us. Johannes, wake up. Katrina is here. It's Katrina, do you hear? The sick man was in his right mind again. Katrina, it was good of you to come. You are kind, Katrina. God will reward you. And me, he will punish. So will he be exalted and declared righteous in all his judgment. But it will go badly for me. Katrina, why is it not as it used to be? Do you remember when we sang the old songs from the songs of Moses and the Lamb? Then my heart was glad in the Lord, but it never became clean. Katrina, I am a sinner, 
a great sinner. And she replies, yes, you are, Johannes, but Jesus is still a greater Savior. The sick man breathed heavily before answering. He seemed to be going over something in his mind. Yes, he is a great Savior for those who let themselves be saved. But my heart is not clean. My mind is evil and I do not have the new spirit. She answers, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Yes, Katrina, but it read to repentance. It is repentance that I lack. You do not lack repentance, Johannes, but faith. You have walked the way of repentance for 30 years. And still, I have not attained it, he says. Johannes, said the woman almost sternly, answer me this question. Do you really want your heart to be clean? Yes, Katrina, God knows that I want that. She says, then, then your repentance is also as true as it can be as a corrupt child of Adam in this world. Your danger is not that you lack repentance, but that you have been drifting away from faith. What then shall I believe, Katrina? You must believe this living word of God. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him, that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Up to this day you have believed in works and looked at your own heart. You saw only sin and wretchedness because God anointed your eyes with the salve of the Spirit to see the truth. Do you have sin in your heart, Johannes? Yes, answered the sick man timidly. Much sin, altogether too much. Just that should make clear to you that God has not forsaken you, said the woman firmly. Only he can see his sin who has the Holy Spirit. What do you mean to say, Katrina, that it could be a work of God that my heart is so unclean? No, not that your heart is unclean. Uh, that is the work of sin. But that now you see it, that is the work of God. But why have I not received a clean heart? That you might learn to love Jesus, said the woman, as calmly as before. Back in his corner, Savonius had raised his aching head. He followed with fixed attention the conversation at the bedside. Katrina sat on the edge of the bed. The curate was amazed to see that the sick man's hands were at rest. They lay broad and clumsy on the quilt and were perfectly still. His eyes were glued to the woman's lips. What do you mean, Katrina? I mean, Johannes, that if you had received a clean heart and for that reason had been able to earn salvation, to what end would you then need the Saviour? If the law could save a single one of us, Jesus would surely not have needed to die on the cross. Because the law worketh wrath, and God stops every mouth by His holy commandments, that all the world may, come, may become guilty before God. 
the sick man had become perfectly still. His sister fanned the flies from his face, except for that no one moved. Have you anything more to say, Katrina? Yes, one more thing, Johannes. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And, you know, basically, at the end, what I want you to hear was what Katrina said to Johannes. You do not lack repentance, Johannes, but faith. Your danger is not that you lack repentance, but that you have been drifting away from faith. See, we have the law and the gospel in God's Word. And, you know, it has a twin purpose. The Word of God comes to us, firstly, you know, to afflict the comfortable. (laughs) Those of us who are complacent and comfortable in our trespasses and sins, the law, you know, points it out and it hammers us. But the Word of God is also the gospel which comes to us because it is a word to bring comfort to the afflicted. And as each of us, you know, as we go through these Ten Commandments, as you are convicted of sin, the response is to exercise faith in a God who delivers us from sin. Not to work harder and try harder, but to surrender and to turn our lives over to Him and allow Him to do that work in us by His Holy Spirit. Yes, there is obedience on our part, but that obedience comes by the power of the Spirit as we yield to Him, as we surrender to Him, as we return to Him and act upon His Word and believe and take Him at His Word. My heart's cry and my heart's prayer is that that would happen in my own heart, but it'll happen in all our hearts. And it is in that, I believe, that we begin to see the seeds of revival because revival needs to begin in the household of God. And can you imagine if we have an entire community that begins to live out these words in a genuine, authentic way, not that we do it perfectly, but that, you know, our hearts are turned and inclined in that way. Can you imagine the difference it would make in the communities that God has placed us? When they see us serious about our faith, where we make decisions not to steal, not to exploit, not to, you know, grab and, and, and operate in ways that the rest of the world would operate, but come, you know, to see how we can meet needs, how we can uh, benefit those who are less fortunate, how we can help those who are downtrodden and oppressed. I think that is the key to seeing a world one for Christ. Bow our heads for a word of prayer. God, our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us so clearly, challenging a lot of our um, self-perceptions, and the ways in which, Lord, we may even have deceived ourselves. Father, you tell us uh, from your word that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, 
that you are faithful and just and will forgive us and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We come before you this afternoon, Lord, acknowledging your word and also casting ourselves upon you at the foot of your cross. Recognizing that, Lord, the price for these sins has already been paid. And that forgiveness is freely offered to us. But what is now needed for us, Lord, is to place our faith and trust wholly in you. And as a result then, to align our lives to your word. Not as a way to earn your favour, but Lord, because we already have that favour in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. All this we ask and pray in your Son's most precious name. Amen. I invite you to stand.